Welcome to Create Your Own Light, where we harness our past, we embrace our future, and learn to conquer the roadblocks along the way together. I'm your host, Travis Howes. Let's get on with it. This episode is brought to you by YourWelder.com. YourWelder.com is an online directory of mobile welders. Whether at your home or at your industrial processing plant, we come to you. Our community of mobile welders can repair anything from the neighbor's mailbox that you just backed into or the cat bulldozer sitting on your job site. YourWelder.com is a directory of highly skilled professionals willing to help you on your job site on your timetable. YourWelder.com screens all of their welders using tools like photos from social media apps such as Instagram, Parler, and Facebook, even face-to-face meetups. YourWelder.com was built by actual industry welding experts who actually perform this type of work on a daily basis. And here's the best part. They're veteran-owned and operated. So go check them out at YourWelder.com. And also feel free to check them out on social media where I'll include their links in the show notes. You know, I just did a post on uh, my Instagram and it was, what it was, was it was a video, um, this video footage of me in Charlotte. I think it was in July of 2021 in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I did a, um, a comedy event for the, um, fire rescue international conference. And when I, I posted that video, I, I dubbed in that song by Luke Combs, um, it's called doing this. And essentially the song is, it talks about what would you be do if, what would you do if you weren't doing what you do now? And in that song, he talks about, I'd still be doing this. Like, this is what I was meant to do. And when I watched that video, I watched it over and over. And what it was, was it was a, a standing ovation of the audience after the event. And I always like capturing those, man, because it's just, I don't know, it's a, it's a beautiful moment that you get to share with your audience. And when you go back and watch it, you don't have to listen to a joke. It's not like a, a punchline where a punchline sometimes relates to a portion of the audience. Sometimes it's the whole audience. But when you get a full standing ovation for what you just went up and did, it's an amazing feeling. And I love capturing those. And I haven't shared them all. I, I keep I keep them in my phone and I go back and sometimes I I relive the glory days, if you will. Because I remember those feelings. It was a shot of adrenaline like no other. And I love watching those, and, and I, I sat on my porch out here at the farm, and I said, you know what? I'm going to record today, and I'm going to do something I haven't done. I'm, I'm just going to talk about comedy, and I'm going to talk about that journey, what it was like for me. And so this, I don't believe that this is going to be mental health related at all. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to, as the thoughts come out today, I'm just going to talk. And because I think one day I want to, I want to listen back on this. And one day, like after I'm gone, I want my kids to know what this was like for me, what that journey was like for me and how, how hard it was. And, um, but also how, how fun it was. I don't know where this podcast is going to go this episode. So if you're interested, keep listening. If not, I'd completely get it. So, um, in my book, I talk about, um, how I got, how I was a class clown in eighth grade and in and, twelfth and grade, and I'm not going to get into all of that, but I was always destined for the stage. Even when I was in the Marine Corps, I was very serious. I was um I was a team leader, I was a squad leader in an infantry platoon, and is as serious as you have to be, I was still a very much a clown. Like I still I could be serious when I needed to. Oftentimes I was uh I was a little too jokey when I didn't need to be. But that's who I was. It's always been my genetic makeup to to 
entertain and to have fun. And I remember at a year early age, my mother telling me, she's like, Travis, you need to be on stage. And she wanted to get me into drama classes and all this. And I knew it when I was that young, I didn't want to be a, a fucking liberal. And I was just like, oops, I think I might've just told on myself on my voting, um, the way that I vote, but shh, don't tell anybody. Um, but I didn't want to be in drama. I just liked making people laugh. And I always, I don't know, I don't know what it was about me, but anyway, I'll never forget. I was sitting on my couch one day. Maybe this will be mental health related shit. I was sitting on my couch in 2007, and this was after my friends were killed in the fire. And uh, June 18th of 2007 is when they were killed. And it was later in that year. I was I was off duty. I was uh, at my house. I was in the middle of the day. I was watching Comedy Central, and I was watching these comedians on uh, Gotham Comedy Live, uh, is what it was called, or it was live at Gotham. Excuse me, it was live at Gotham on um, Comedy Central. And I was watching them, and I wasn't laughing. And I remember thinking, "Man, I can, I can do that. I can, I can do that same thing." I'm sitting here not laughing, but what I didn't realize, it's hard to make a motherfucker laugh outside of a, a live audience. Like when you're listening to a comedian or you're watching them on TV, it's not as funny as it is in person. So the audience is laughing on TV, but I'm in my living room not laughing. You know why? Because there's no connection. There's no real connection there. So that's that's the trick. I didn't realize that at the time. So I start I start writing down jokes, stuff that I thought was funny. And I'm gonna I'm not gonna get long winded on any stories here. So the long story is I, I the next day I went to work and I ran into my buddy who we called Sugar. His his nickname was Sugar. And I walked into the station, I said, Sugar, check this out. I'm gonna start doing stand up comedy. And he gave me this look like, What? And I made him and the rest of his crew, they were B-shift. There were 10 of them sitting in the day room. And I, and I pulled out this piece of paper and I started telling jokes off of a paper, piece of paper. And they weren't laughing. And they made me feel like shit. And Sugar told me it sucked and it was horrible and I shouldn't do this. And that is what motivated me to actually get started. Because I've never been one to let other people dictate what I can become or what I can do in life. And I think that's very important as, as we navigate the waters of life. I think so many people will not pursue their dreams or their purpose in life based off of the opinion of others. Now that was sugar's opinion. I went outside. I felt stupid. I couldn't make anybody laugh. And I was always good at making people laugh. What I realized was you can't force it. You just have to be yourself. So I ended up going to some open mics and I started doing open mic comedy and I got, I got fast tracked really quickly because I did this competition in Mississippi. Now this is what it took for me to really like, um, I guess get ahead. It's you have to you have to test yourself. You have to be vulnerable. You have to put yourself out there. You have to take chances on yourself. And that's one thing that I was always willing to do. I was always willing to invest in myself and to gamble on myself because I've always understood the power of me. And I think you need to understand the power of you. Um I went to a comedy competition being very, very early in, I mean, only doing comedy a few times. And I went to this comedy competition in Oxford, Mississippi, that was in, uh, at Ole Miss university. And I drove 10 hours to go there to get five minutes on stage. When I signed up, they actually chose me. Um, there were, I want to say 20 or 30 competitors and I was actually competing against seasoned comedians. Now I wasn't, that doesn't necessarily mean they were television comedians, but these were people that were, on stage, uh, pretty regularly. Some of them were paid. So that's what we considered professional, um, whether they were getting paid in bars or at comedy clubs. So 
I went in there. I didn't think I would win this thing, but I wanted to actually challenge myself. So I went in, and I remember sitting backstage, and I was listening to everybody's stories, and people were kind of like trying to intimidate one another. They were talking about where they had worked. They'd worked this club. They had worked this venue. They had worked with so-and-so. And I remember sitting there thinking, fuck, I have only done comedy like four or five times at this point in my, in my little career. I mean, it wasn't more than five times at this point. And I was thinking, I'm going to get embarrassed up here. So what happened was this. I I, I had this set list, which is what we call our our like when a singer goes on stage, they have a list of songs in order they want to sing. And a comedian has a set list, and that's the order of jokes that they want to tell. And I had planned this thing, the whole 10-hour drive there. And I got there, and I threw it away. I said, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go up. I'm going to be myself, and I'm going to talk about what's funny to me. And at the time, what was funny to me was some very dark shit. But it was very authentic because it was definitely the space that I was in at the time. So I go on stage. I don't know. I was in the lineup. I was probably midway through the lineup and I go on stage. And when I got up there, like Luke Combs says it in that song, um, feeling on fire on a hardwood stage, bright lights, like lightning running through my veins. That's exactly what happened. Those lights were running through my veins and I ended up telling my jokes, not worried about what people would think but worried about being as authentically real with what I was doing in the moment. And when I did, I got a rip roar and applause. I didn't, I didn't, it didn't register that how big it was at the point because they knew the show wasn't over and there were still more people to come. But at the end I'm sitting backstage. I actually wanted to leave because I knew, I knew I wasn't going to be called up on stage as a finalist, but at the end, they called three names up onto the stage and it was first, second, and third place. And they started drawing these envelopes. And I talk about this in my book. And when it came down to call the winner, it was between they, they did the runner up and then, or the the third place. I can't remember exactly, but when they were pulling the name out of the envelope for the winner, I saw my name on it and I'll never forget what that felt like. And it felt like, it felt like I rolled the dice on myself. I gambled on myself when nobody else would really um, believe in me, I believed in me. And all of that was coming out of that envelope at one time. And I'll remember the emotions that were running through me. You would have think that I just won um, some national television show. And that's what it felt like to me. There were probably 100 people, 150 people in this audience. It wasn't a small audience by any means because that's a good science comedy crowd. And when my name came out, came out of that envelope, I was like, holy shit, what just happened? And then you, they stood up. Everybody was clapping. And it was like, you deserve that. And I didn't realize like how hard the grind would be after that. For me, that happened very, very quickly within five, five times of being on stage. And I thought, well, man, this is going to be a piece of cake. I'm just going to. I'm going to get into comedy and everything's just going to be butter. And that wasn't the case. What happened was this. I won that event. I won $500. I won uh, the title Mouth of the South. And they gave me this trophy that looked like a golden dick. I got it somewhere at my house. I have to I have to try to find that. And it said Mouth of the South. It looked like a golden dildo. like Because what it was supposed to represent was a golden nugget. But I think whoever built it built it to be an asshole. And I'm sitting there holding this golden dick trophy on stage, and it was wonderful. But this is where I realized the loneliness of comedy. 
really quickly. This was my first time being out of town overnight by myself because uh, before that I, I had performed locally a few times and I always went back home. I had roommates at the time. I had a girlfriend, whatever. Well, I was out of town. I was 10 hours from home and I was stuck 10 hours from home with all of the stuff that I was still experiencing from the job, the nightmares, the anxiety, all this, the alcohol problems. And after that, I went, I took my $500. I called my mom. I was crying. I was like, I did it. I fucking felt like I made it. And I'm sitting in a Waffle House alone and having dinner around 11 o'clock at night by myself. And that's the, that's the shitty thing about comedy when you're out there. You're, you're really connected to a crowd while you're there. And then afterwards, you're nobody and you're alone in the big world again, right? And that's why so many comedians are um, they're depressed and they have problems is because you're relevant while you're there. And then afterwards, everybody goes their separate ways. And I talk about that when, when I talk about peer support, when I do these peer support training groups and stuff. Like, look, we, when we take our friends out drinking, guess what? When they have a problem, we take them out drinking and they're fine in the moment because we have them right then. But at the end of the night, when we go our separate ways, what we're doing is we're sending that person home with all of their bad thoughts, all of the bad stuff that we just relived. And we're sending them to a very dangerous place and they're going to be alone and they're going to be by themselves with those thoughts with no shoulder to lean on at that time. That's why it's not a good idea to take our friends out drinking who have problems, right? So that essentially is what, what happened to me. I was my only friend and I would take myself out over the years on the road like that. I'd go to the waffle house. That was my, my, my poison after shows. I love waffle house. And, uh, I would end up in my hotel room with a 12 pack. And at, back then I could drink a 12 pack of beer like it was nothing. And I'd drink it till four five, six in the morning. And I'd have maids beating on my door trying to, trying to get me out because I'm late for checkout because I'm blackout drunk. And that's what happened that night. I celebrated my first comedy victory. I celebrated it alone and I celebrated it crying. And, uh, I was in such a bad place back then that I felt like I didn't deserve that. My buddies were, they were all just killed just months prior to that. And here I am celebrating a victory out on the road, um, getting a little bit of notoriety. And I went back home that night or back in my hotel. I'll never forget. I stayed in motel six in Oxford, Mississippi, right across the street was the gas station. I bought my case of beer from my 12 pack, excuse me. And I drank myself drunk and, um, into, into a blackout sleep. Well, not blackout, but it, it was a 12 pack, but I finished it. And then I was late checking out and the whole morning, the next day I felt like shit. I'm driving home. And that was the start of what comedy would be for me for a long time. I'll never forget before I ever started comedy, I was sitting at a Barnes and Noble with my mother on the west side of Charleston. She was in town um, and we went to Barnes and Noble and I, and I was telling her I wanted to start doing comedy and um, I knew nothing about it. So what I did is I went out, we, sitting at, we were sitting in Barnes and Noble and I bought a book, How to Do Stand-Up Comedy. I'll never forget this. I bought a fucking book and this is something I don't do. I always just figure things out. I don't ever... Um, let anybody instruct me on how to do something. I, I, I've always felt like learning the hard way is the best way to learn. But for some reason I bought this book and I just wanted to know what the business was like. And this lady that that had this book was kind of explaining the business. And then what I, re- I realized later was she wasn't that great at comedy, but that's obviously that's my opinion. She had some experiences, but she figured out a way to write a book that would appeal to people like me and make money off of that. Because 
a lot of aspiring people that wanted to get into this business needed to understand what it was like. And she had the stones to go out and write a book. Granted, she didn't have a whole lot of credentials. She wrote this book and I bought it. I bought into it. And I remember sitting there and I told my mother the most cocky thing I think I've ever said to anybody. I looked at my mother dead in the face and I go, I'm going to make it in stand-up comedy. And she looked at me and she goes, you know, that's one of the hardest businesses in the world, right, Travis? And I said, that's exactly why, because I know me and I know my capabilities and I'm going to do it regardless of the naysayers. Now, statistically in comedy, the deck is stacked against you. I mean, it's like one in, it's like a one in a million shot, right? And what I talk about is one in a million. I'm not talking about becoming a household name. I never wanted that. I never, not one time in my life said, you know what? I want to be famous. I, because to be honest with you, I didn't deserve that. And this was at a time where I felt guilty for even breathing and being alive. What I wanted was a purpose. I, what I wanted and what I craved was the ability to to go out and do something to make me feel good. And comedy was like a drug to me. As soon as I, my, I became interested in it, I just wanted all of it that I could get. And I didn't want to be mediocre. I didn't want to settle for being just a barroom comedian. I didn't want to settle for just doing these what we would call one-nighters all around the country where you would get paid 125 bucks to go to goddamn Vermont. and that's But that's what we would do. We would travel all over the place. And it, obviously, it wasn't for the money. You craved the stage time because what made you better at your trade in, in comedy was the consistency, the um, the diversity with the audiences, working a a liberal, what we call a room, right? Comedy is what in a room work in a liberal white room one night, work in an all black comedy club the next night, and then play to a fucking group of rednecks the next night. And when you can get to a point where your comedy works in every single one of those audiences, to me, that was making it, that was being able to play to any, any crowd anywhere in this country and being able to find a way to relate to that crowd. And that to me is what I worked really hard to do. I didn't focus on television. I didn't do all that. A few of those opportunities came along later in my um, career. And what I didn't tell you was when I was watching that show, the, the, the live at Gotham, I, before I ever started comedy, I told myself in my living room, I said it out loud. I said, I'm going to get on that show. And, and it took eight years, but I did eight years later, I was on that same show. And that was my first television experience. Well, this is what the grind was kind of like for me. Um, <clears throat> I don't have enough time to talk about all of this. Maybe I'll do an, uh, a second episode, a spinoff episode of this. But a reality check came to me um, later in my in my comedy thing. But after I won that comedy competition, what really helped catapult me to being a paid professional working comedian, I, I did this within within the first six months. Because winning that that show allowed me to go to my first comedy club and actually get paid as a as a feature comedian, which is the middle comedian. The, the, it's what the set is what we call the setup guy. He sets the show up for the headliner. You do 25, 30 minutes, okay? Well, I got a full paid weekend at a comedy club that was in Jackson, Tennessee back then. And I'm actually as funny you say this, as you're listening to this episode, this is coming out on Memorial Day. I'll actually be in Jackson. Tennessee doing post-traumatic purpose this week. As you're listening to this, I'll be in Jackson, Tennessee um, for the Jackson professional firefighters doing a, a uh, comedy event 
and post-traumatic purpose. One of my last comedy events too, as luck would have it, one of my first paid show ever was in Jackson, Tennessee. And one of my last paid shows will also be in Jackson, Tennessee. So I get hooked up. We go, I, I do, um, I do my first paid weekend there. And the headliner that I was working with, he, his name was the fry man. He was a really funny guy. He was a Marine Corps veteran. Actually, he only had nine fingers. He lost one of his fingers. I think he blew it off with a pistol or something, but he's, he's a, he's dead now. But he actually hooked me up after that and brought me up to St. Louis and I uh, went to St. Louis and uh, I ate dicks all weekend there. I did horrible and I'll never forget it's w- what most people call bombing, what comedians call bombing. A lot of times we'll call eating dicks. I don't know where that came from, but you know, I did say on the last episode, we're going to get back to talking about dicks. So I ate dicks all weekend and I wanted to quit. I, I felt so shitty. I was like, man, these jokes don't work. I suck. This is stupid. Rob, my friend Sugar. He was right. I should never have started this. And I went home with all these doubts. Well, comedy will do that to you. Comedy is one of the most humbling things I've ever experienced in my life. Because you can have a crowd eating out of the palm of your hand on one night. And the next night in the same city have another crowd that absolutely just doesn't connect with you. And it's very frustrating. Because what you start doing is you start blaming the audience. And you start thinking, man, these people suck, blah, 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 blah. But guess who sucks? You do. At the end of the day, it was my responsibility to find a way to connect to them. And that is what makes a comedian good at his trade. Being able to find a way to dig through the uncomfortableness of a crowd not liking you and being able to be resilient and find a way for them to like you. And that's what comedy, comedy, comedy taught me resiliency. Like, (laughs) like it was, like it was crazy day in, day out. I would write jokes city after city. I would bounce around while I was still a firefighter and I would go to these towns, man, I have so many crazy stories. I would Jackson is actually the the town where I got, I had a guy swing on me because he asked me to go out drinking with him and his girl. And I said, nah, man, I'm I'm just going to go back. And I'll never forget. He goes, Oh, you think you're too fucking famous to hang out with? And he swung at me and the bouncer saw it. The bouncer scooped him up, slammed him down into concrete. And I remember thinking, damn, this guy thinks I'm famous. I'm not shit. I'm just a, I'm a fucking Charleston firefighter. I'm just here for the weekend. I'm nobody. Right. But he thought I was famous. It was kind of funny. And he, and he swung at me and then he got his ass kicked. I didn't even have to touch him, but I have stories like that all day. Um, People always ask, what's the, what's your favorite place to play? And I, I had so many wonderful experiences that I can't put my finger on it. Like I always love playing obviously for firemen and cops and military, but I'll never forget one of the, one of the coolest experiences I had was going overseas for, for the military, because when I was in the military, they brought comedians over to us, you know, a few times and we got to watch them. And when I got to return that favor, it was like full circle. It was really neat when I got to do my uh, Pacific tour, when I went to Korea, Japan, Okinawa, and it was all for Marine bases at that. It was no other, no other bases except the Marines. And it was cool because it was just like, I'm giving back to them. And we had such a blast with that. Um, I remember this is just going to be me talking like as, as memories come flooding back to me. Cause I was sitting on my porch smiling this morning, thinking about all this. I remember sleeping in my car in Omaha, Nebraska one time at the airport, not because I was flying in or out of the airport because I was on the road going somewhere 
and I passed through Omaha and the safest place for me to go to sleep was in a paid parking lot. And I paid the overnight parking fee because there's not a lot of crime in the airport parking lot. Well, I didn't think so anyway. Um, but it was better than the usual truck stop. Cause normally we, you know, sleep in a rest area or something like that. Um, but I was sleeping in a uh, Omaha airport parking lot. Oh, you know what it was? I was I was coming back from Fat Daddy's Comedy Club in South Dakota where I was headlining. Um, I got to headline that club one time for for a weekend, and it's closed now. But uh, yeah, I ended up sleeping in an Omaha um, airport, and that that wasn't uncommon. It wasn't uncommon to sleep in your car. And you know, as we're traveling around the country, I was still a fireman for most most of this, or not most of it, but my front for the first couple of years. <clears throat> And I always intended on being a fireman. I just wanted comedy to be kind of like my little side hustle because comedy was um, just my part-time job. And I remember being in Alaska one time. We were we were in Alaska, and I got drugged into this titty bar called, um, oh, what was it called? Bush something, the Bush Company or something like that. And I was dating my wife at the time, and I, I, I fucked up and posted pictures of us all drinking and and I tagged my post and that's, I'll never forget my phone ringing. (laughs) There was a little argument there, but here I am. I'm a firefighter. I'm a young fireman and I'm getting paid to fly to Alaska. They're paying for everything. You go into Alaska, they're paying you well. And here I am at a comedy club in Alaska. And then when I leave here, I'm going back to my cool ass job of being a fireman. And then I got to come back and share those stories with the firemen. And it's just it was just a neat time in my life. And I'll never forget in 2010 when my fire career came to a halt. And I was I was forced out of the job that I love I, I, I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And at that point I was on the job eight and a half, ten, ten years in emergency services, but I was on the job for eight and a half years at the time. And they told me I couldn't do it anymore. And I was devastated, but fortunately for me, I'd already been doing comedy for a couple of years. So I said, you know what? If you're not going to allow me to do this, I'm going to go do what I've been working really hard at for the last few years. And I went on the road and I went on it full time and I I didn't look back and I was running from something. I was running from everything that I was afraid to face at the time. Uh, And it was hard for me because I was alone and, and that's when I was, I was really drinking a lot back then. And as a comedian, it's not like you're in a fucking rock band. You don't have all these friends to hang around with you. You meet up with a different comic every weekend that you're working a club. And after that, you probably never see that comedian again. And sometimes you like them and sometimes you don't like them. And sometimes they're dramatic. And there's a lot of weird motherfuckers in that business. And I wasn't like that. I was, I was, I didn't do the drama. I didn't need all the, um, the poor, poor, pitiful me shit. I just, I felt sorry for myself. I didn't need everybody else to do it for me. I didn't go on stage and, and cry a fucking river. I didn't do drugs. I was never into that. I saw a lot of drugs when I was out there. I saw a lot, a lot of dudes blowing cocaine and smoking weed and, and doing what they wanted to do, drinking, getting drunk to do their trade. And I never did that. I, I always stayed sober on stage. I, I was like, if I'm going to do this and be good at it, I need to be able to do it completely sober. And it was weird because when I was, when I was at the fire department, I would go to work there drunk <laughs> sometimes, but I never did it as a, as, as a working comedian. Crazy. I want to talk about the shitty side of the business and how you're treated. Um, again, if anybody has any questions, inbox me. Cause like I say, I'm, I'm just, 
I'm trying to keep up with my brain because it's going all over the place right now. I'm not a name dropper, but there's a lot of shitty people in that business. A lot of people that are are preying on uh, young comedians and they take advantage of them because they understand that these these fucking kids will sell their soul just to get on stage because they're so passionate about it. And what they don't realize at a young age is how you end up getting roped into this business. And if you don't understand business, you end up getting fucked. And the hardest thing that you'll ever have to learn in comedy in the comedy world is how to tell people no, because this, and this is what I mean by that. They will use you like a dish rag and they will say, look, I got this really good show for you, but there's no budget for it. And these are bookers and, and, and shit like that and agents. And what they're doing is they're making money, but they know that you'll do it for $125 and you'll suck dick for gas money. If you have, I know I never did that, but got close a couple times. You'll suck dick for gas money just to get there, just to break even to get home, just to break even. And they'll have you drive to Wisconsin for $125. And back then that might fill your tank up in, in 08 round trip. And sometimes they're like, well, we can't afford a hotel. So you're going to have to figure that out. And that's why we would sleep in our cars. And it's like, they're making, they're making money hand over fist doing this. And they got, I don't know, 50 locations around the country. And they're sending several hundred comedians out over the weekends, you know, to do these shows and they're making money and they're not paying anybody. But here's the, here's the beautiful part of that. That's capitalism. That's learning how to own a business and operate a business. We were the people that were willing to choose our value. And that's where I really learned the art of establishing your value in what you do. You can't just walk on a, walk onto a stage somewhere and say, all right, this is what I want to do for a living. And my value is $10,000. You can't do that because first you have to establish yourself. You have to establish your credibility and justify why that's your value. You can't just show up one day and say, Hey, look, I'm really great at what I do. Well, that, that remains to be seen. Okay. You got to go out there day in, day out, year in, year out, and fucking grind. You have to grind your ass to the bone to establish your value. You can't do that. It's like, how do you relay that, relate that to a firefighter, right? It's like a probie walking in expecting captain's pay. It doesn't just happen. It, it, it's like a, a, a rookie police officer walk in expecting sergeant's pay. It doesn't just have, happen. You have to grind day in, day out, and you have to promote up that ladder. And eventually you get to establish that you're worthy of that position. And that's what would happen with me year in and year out. I, I saw what they were doing. I never liked it, but I understood it and I respected it. I was like, look, I can't be mad at these guys for, for paying us because we are willing to do the shit work. We're willing to get in here and do the grunt work. They are actually smart. They're back home every weekend with their wife and their kids and their families, hopefully having a good life while we're out here lit doing the heavy lifting. And it's no different than the corporate world. You got the people at the top making the money and throwing the crumbs down to the to the folks at the bottom. And if you're willing to settle for those fucking crumbs at the bottom, that's on you. That that's not the people above you's fault. And I hear people all the time bitching, I don't make enough money. Well, I don't make enough money. They don't pay me. Well, stop expecting and fucking demand your value. Get out of the job that that low paying job that you're in and fucking demand more. It's all within your control. So I would eventually 
keep doing these shitty gigs. And eventually I remember when I got to headlining status where I was headlining just normal clubs. These weren't even A-rooms, what we would call your A-rooms, like your funny bones and, and stuff like that. I would eventually go on to do those. But when I was doing um, just your normal run-of-the-mill comedy clubs, I'm getting paid $225 a night. And I thought that was good money. And I had I would have to do two shows that night. So for me to make... 450 to 500 dollars i'd have to do four shows on a friday and saturday together right and i thought that was good money because i was no longer making the 125 dollars for for doing two shows in one night now i'm making 225 baby and that was real money back then but you would start doing that night in night out and by that time um, I was several years in and I, like I say, I got fast tracked, not because I got lucky because I worked my fucking ass off and because I understood I'm not going to come out here and treat this like a party. I'm going to be professional and I'm going to give it everything I got and I'm going to try to make relationships and I'm going to show these club owners and these bookers that I'm professional and I'm not just some guy who's going to sleep on the couch all day. Wake up that night, get drunk, and go do a comedy club. I'm not going to be that guy. I'm professional. Regardless of the amount of money that I was making, which wasn't much, I still presented myself as professionally as possible. And I was thankful for the opportunities that I got. I never expected it. Um, I, uh, yeah. So, I don't know where the fuck I was going with that. As time went on, I, I remember... I won't say this comic's name and it's it's not a bad story, but he became a friend of mine. Uh, he's dead now, but he, uh, I was watching him one night and he was, I want to say he was like 17 years in, in comedy. And I was only probably three years. I was a headliner at this point, but this weekend we got paired together. And since he had been doing it a lot longer, I was the middle guy. I was his opener and we were playing in all places, Johnson city, Tennessee, where I just got back from. And I remember watching him on stage that night. And I remember thinking, man, when I'm 17 years in and we were playing at a, a comedy club in a hotel in the holiday in there. And it was a piece of shit comedy club, not talking about the city, but it was just a very poorly run comedy club because the staff didn't want to be there. They didn't police the room. They let people sit wherever they wanted. And when hecklers would start in, they just let them. And they would let these people come in absolutely drunk out of their minds. And it was just, I remember it would it was like that movie Roadhouse. Every time you went in there, it was a fucking fight. Like it was just, it was rough. And I hated, I hated playing that comedy club. I love Johnson City, but I hated playing that comedy club. But we would go, and that's where you cut your teeth though. And that's what makes you good. But I remember being in there watching my friend on stage and he was doing well. And I remember thinking, this is not where I want to be. I don't want to be 17 years in still playing places like this. And I, it wasn't, I wasn't saying it was beneath me, but I knew that if I was 17 years in and this is as far as I could go, then I would be out. I didn't want to do it at that level anymore because I, I felt like at 17 years in, you should be on a much more um, professional stage. Versus just being what we call a road dog running around for gas money. And I didn't want to do that. And that's what happened eventually in my comedy career. I, I eventually um, got to a point where I said, you know what? I'm not going to do those places anymore. And I'm going to start doing more private, the private things. And what I realized was this. I realized my value was much higher. And I mean 
way higher in the private sector with comedy. What I did is I cut my teeth all those years for making a couple hundred dollars. And then when I stopped booking those comedy clubs and start working for those sharks on the other side of the water, or on the other side of the ocean or pond, whatever you want to call it, I got to choose my own value. And I started doing more private events where I would go do um, conferences and, and things like that. And these conferences, guess what they have? They have budgets for this stuff. And what I, what I found was it took me all those years to establish my value. It took me all those years to polish myself to the point where now I had the credibility to go in and demand the value that I felt like I was worth for, for that specific uh, trade and that, that level of entertainment. And the beautiful part was when I started doing these conferences, they had the budgets for it and they didn't balk at the price. And what I realized was like all those years I could have been doing this to, to help myself financially, I was selling myself short. For many years, I thought about crossing over and I thought about getting out and doing um, the higher level paying um, industry, what we call gigs back then. But I didn't have the confidence. I thought, man, I still got to get better. I need more credits. I got to do this and I got to do that. And I got roped into booking myself into more comedy clubs through these other bookers because the work was at least consistent. And I didn't want to uh, relinquish the security of that. I knew I could go out every weekend and work for 300 bucks. And the conferences were few and far between at that time. They were only every couple of months. But here's what I would do. I would book myself so much for the sanctity of security of the shitty gigs that I let the good ones pass me by. And when they would come available, I wasn't available. I still had to go do those shitty ones. And I found what I was doing was 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 uh, con- not contagious. What's the word I'm looking for? It was, um, fuck, I can't think of the word. I was booking myself so much for security purposes that I was missing out on bigger and better opportunities. And that's what a lot of people do in life. I feel like they, they throw away opportunities that could really catapult them out of financial situations or mental health situations because they stay in something secure. Look, that can go back to just a normal abusive relationship. People will stay in what they know. They will stay uncomfortable because it's familiar. And there, that, that's what the word I was looking for. I was staying in something that was bad for me because it was familiar to me. And I was afraid to not have that anymore. I was afraid to let go of, of the vine, as you say, when, when monkeys swing from trees, right? They can't, they won't let go of the vine that's in their hand until they have another vine securely in their hand. Does that make sense now? And do you know people like that in relationships? They'll stay in an abusive relationship and they won't let go of that abusive relationship until they have the security of another relationship, good, bad, or indifferent. They won't let go of one until they have the other firmly in their grasp. They'll never just swing out of that tree, let go of that vine, and just be free falling in the air trying to grab onto another vine. That's security at its finest, right? Well, I don't know where I'm going with that. But I, I, will, I won't forget this. When I started realizing my true potential, my true value, that's when everything got a lot better for me. And I was like, man, I'm actually heading somewhere with this. Now, I had a, a, some really good opportunities. I got to sit down with major network executives 
and be considered for a, um, a pilot for my own television series. It's not something I really talk openly about because it never happened, right? It, it got squashed. It didn't happen, but we had a very famous writer. I don't like, again, I'm not name dropping, but this is back when I had a manager. We had a very famous writer that was, he wrote a, um, I don't know what they, I can't remember what they call that. He wrote this script in that we sat down with several uh, network executives and they showed interest. But at the time, I think they saw where the industry was going and it wasn't in the direction of a guy like me. So they opted out of it, but it was still nice to sit at those studio tables in Los Angeles and have those conversations and to even be considered for that. Because when I look back on my life, I wasn't meant to, to be anywhere. I was meant to grow up in Bluffton, South Carolina with the way that things were going for me and just end up on a nine to five job. Um, not a college educated guy. I wasn't, I wasn't, I shouldn't say meant, but I wasn't destined for any kind of success. And I, I, I firmly believed in that. So when I look back on my life and I had all these really cool opportunities, it, it, it does bring a smile to my face. And what I guess what I'm getting at is whatever situation you're in, whatever your background is, it doesn't have to be permanent. You can change that and you can have a beautiful journey. You got to take chances on yourself. I'll never forget when I got to go to the serious studios in New York and we got to sit down. My album was released and it hit number seven on the top 10 comedy charts. Did it last? No, it lasted for like two days, but I don't give a fuck. I had that opportunity and I got to take my wife up there and we got to sit down and we had to talk about that opportunity on the air right down the hall from Howard Stern. And it was just a cool, cool experience. Um, did some other television work. It was neat. Um, but being backstage, when you would go, uh, I, you know, I always liked playing the Stardome in Alabama. Now, the Stardome was one of the biggest comedy clubs in the country. And I loved going backstage and sitting there. And I got to headline this place. And it, me, as, as a guy, I remember begging to get to play there when I was young. See, I didn't get into a lot of the grind on here. I, I thought I was going to get into the grind, but I didn't. Um, I remember, I can still remember the email address and the name of the girl that, that handled all the bookings. I, I won't say it, but I used to email her so many times just hoping for a response. And I would never get one. I never got an email back from her. Um, until one day I, I decided to call up there. I must've emailed a hundred times. I called up there, ex- explained who I was. And, uh, she's like, yeah, I've heard your name, blah, 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 blah. I'll be back in touch with you. I've seen some of your emails. Well, the problem with comedy is people, people don't even respond to your emails. Okay. A lot of times they just see it and they just, dis- dis- they discard it. They have hundreds of emails coming in. So why take a chance on yours? Well, I started getting annoying. There were, there were times where I would show up. I'll tell you a a time here in a second about the funny bone in Virginia beach with my boy, Randy. Um, so long story short, I ended up getting into, uh, the stardom life is about timing sometimes, right? When you, when you try to force things, this is what I, I get back into the universe. I was trying to force something that I wasn't ready for. I was not ready for the stardom back then. This is a 450, 500 seat comedy theater. I mean, it is one of the most beautiful places in the country to play comedy. And I thought I was ready, but I wasn't. And the universe was, was, was keeping me away from it for years until one day, one day out of the blue, I had a booker that was like, Hey, um, would you mind going to the stardom with such and such headliner? And I was like, Holy shit. Are you serious? 
But by that time, I was ready. And when I went in there, let me tell you something. This place was sold the fuck out. 500. Now, that's a big place for comedy. That's a big comedy room. I mean, maybe it was 450 before they renovated it. 400, somewhere around. But it was still a big audience. And when I went in there, I fucking smoked it. Now, I did very, very well as a, as a feature act. And so I did so well that the owner of the comedy club pulls me aside. And he's like, dude, do you do you normally headline? And I was like, I, I do. And he goes, well, I want you back here as a headliner. And I was floored because I was just Travis House, you know. And, I mean, I had, like, a couple little credits back then. This was before I had my even had my television credits. And uh, he brought me back to headline months later. And I remember being backstage and listening to that crowd out there chanting. Not, not I mean, they weren't calling for Travis, but they were out there. You could tell they were ready for a show. And I was sitting backstage with goosebumps and my heart and my throat. And I was like, these people are here and I get to give them the show tonight. This ain't, I'm not setting this up for somebody else. This is my fucking show. And it was a Wednesday night. It was one night. It, he gave me a one trial night and I went out there and destroyed this fucking place. And I got to come back regularly as a headliner to the Stardome where years before they wouldn't even return my fucking email. And now all of a sudden the owner was calling me personally on my cell phone to give me dates. And it was just, it was one of those amazing feelings like, man, I work really hard and I deserve this, right? I don't know why, why I'm going there. I'm just having these thoughts. Uh, I guess proud moment, if you will. Um, I guess I'm thinking of, was it worth it? And yeah, I look back and it was all worth it because it was the universe lining me up to put me where I, where I know I need to be, which is on stage doing post-traumatic purpose. I want to tell you about the story with Randy and uh, the funny bone in Virginia beach. And I remember I, th- I wanted a, a shot so bad to, to play the funny bone that I made a connection with another comedian who worked there regularly. And he told me he'd make a call to the general manager. Well, he made a call to his general manager. The general manager would never call me. He would never answer my emails. Well, this guy just dropped my name in his ear and that was it. And that's all he was going to do for me. Well, the general manager didn't give a fuck. He would not respond to emails. He wouldn't return voicemails. So I said, fuck it. My buddy Randy at the time lived in Virginia Beach. So we drove up there and we sat in the courtyard all fucking day. All day. I knew what this guy looked like. I'd never seen him in in in, in real life, but somebody described him to me. So we straight up stalked this guy. I mean, stalked him. And I found a night. It was a, an amateur night where they were having an open mic. And I stalked him so badly, we sat in a parking lot, and I caught him when he was walking into the building. And I said, hey, his name was Jamie back then. I said, are you Jamie? And he looked at me like, who, who are these two motherfuckers that look like they're about to rob me? <laughs> and he said, yeah. And I said, I'm Travis House. So-and-so called you a few months ago and, uh, and told you about me, and I, w- I want a chance to come and do your open mic. And he looked at me like, you, f- you piece of shit. And he was so put off. But I didn't know what else to do. I knew I needed a chance. I deserved this chance. <laughs> so I thought. He walks me inside. And just to get me out of his hair, he gives me a shot on that night. He signs me up. I went in there. I did. I fucking did great. I did, I did really good. And I never heard from him again. My, my point is this. There is no point. Do what you got to do to get the chances that you think you, you deserve in life. Gamble on yourself. Roll the dice on yourself. And things will happen. I'm not saying every time you do it, something wonderful is going to happen. But if you don't take a chance on you, who is? You know, who who is going to take a chance on you? 
I like to cut these things around the 45 minute mark. I have so much to say. I actually got really passionate on this one and, I, and I'm sorry that there's not a big message here, but man, as I sit here and reflect on comedy, I do comedy for 15 years and the highs and lows of it were tremendous. Um, I could go on for hours. I never really intended on getting out of comedy, but there came a point when, and back in 2016, when I started speaking openly about post-traumatic stress, when nobody was really doing that, and I saw the effect that it had on people that were listening to what I had to say about it. And I remember if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be authentic with this, just like I did with comedy. And I'm going to be real and I'm not going to hold my tongue with it. And I saw over the years what it was doing and the, and the, the need for it and the demand for it was through the roof. Because even now, there's not a lot of people doing it authentically. There's a lot of people that found the business side of it and they're, they're selling the business of it. And I'm not here to knock anybody. Cause we, I mean, we've talked about that on podcasts before, but that's not what I do. Um, does it have a value? Yeah. It, there's a, there's a monetary value on what I do. There has to be like, I, I can't leave my place of peace out here at my farm for fucking free and, and travel the country at 44 years old and being away from my family all the time. I just can't do that anymore. So there's a monetary value on it. But what I found was this, I was trying to juggle the two. I was trying to do comedy and do, um, post-traumatic purpose and post-traumatic stress courses for first responders. And the more I was doing comedy in, in today's day and age, the less I was getting excited about it. And it didn't, it didn't excite me anymore. And that's, that's when I think things are, are no good for you anymore. When something doesn't excite you, keep, keep trying it. But after a while, it, it, it will be honest with you. And it'll tell you, you're, you, you've grown past this. And that's, I think that's what it was for me is I realized as a 44 year old man, I outgrew it and I got a, I had a really good run with it. I did everything I wanted to do with it. I accomplished more than I ever thought I would accomplish with it. And it just, it wasn't there for me anymore. I didn't get the juice from it. I didn't get excited going on stage. I, I would be backstage and, and I was just like, you know, I'm going to go out here now and now motherfuckers are going to start moaning at jokes because they're going to be offended at, at stuff like five years ago that they were laughing at and they were high-fiving you and they were trying to retell the joke to you after the show and now it's like they're offended by it and I just didn't want to be a part of that anymore and I'd be a part of that culture anymore. I found the value of what I do and the excitement in what I do with helping people um, and relating to people with post-traumatic purpose. And that's why I did the crossover. I have two dates left with comedy this year that I'm going to honor. Um, but after that, that's it. I got one coming up in Jackson, Tennessee, like I just said, and that's, uh, in two weeks. And then I got one in Beaver Creek, Ohio, and that's actually going to be the last show that I ever do. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to do that shit anymore. So, Hey, this was me just spitballing today. Thanks for being here. Um, if you, if you stayed around for the whole episode, if you have any questions about comedy, Hey, fucking ask me, man. Cause there's a lot of cr- cool stuff about it. I just can't think of it all right now. I got three cups of coffee running through me and and I'm all jittery and everything. So I I know I'm kind of sporadic and all over the place. Happy Memorial day. I, um, again, like last episode, don't forget where that came from. You know, uh, enjoy your barbecues, enjoy being out on a boat, enjoy being with your people. Don't forget the price that was paid for us to be able to have that day. All right. Thank y'all.